Today, we're talking about leadership in the church. So let's just be real clear um, in the beginning here. When it comes to what we believe about doctrine, what we believe about biblical teaching and instruction and practices in the church, it's important right from the outset to distinguish between doctrine and dogma, all right? Dogma is taking secondary issues and making them primary. For several years now, we've used the language open hand and closed hand. So we have open-handed issues are those issues where Bible-believing Christians can debate over them, even disagree over them, but not divide over them, all right? Closed-handed issues are those issues that we really want or we just remain committed to. So obviously, there's some things in the Bible, like, I'll give you an example, like beliefs surrounding end times and Jesus' return, okay? We call that eschatology, just so that we sound smart. I don't know why, but we gave it a name, and so what... And, So what you believe about end times, what you believe about things like practices like, I don't know, speaking in tongues, or what you believe about the particulars of how creation happened, those are things, things like that. Those are some things that where you can love Jesus and believe the Bible and disagree on some things and still be a Christian, okay? There are other issues. Is that news? I just want to know how, are we okay with that? We can have some, okay, good. There are other issues like the incarnation, which again, just a a fancy way of saying Jesus was God in the flesh, or the resurrection of Jesus. We have to be very clear on those kinds of things when it comes to understanding who God is and how he relates to us. So we don't claim that every theological or doctrine discussion is cut and dried. And for sure, every matter of practice within the church is not cut and dried. I think the fact that brilliant Spirit-filled scholars committed to the authority of Scripture, and that's really important, land on both sides of some issues that points to the complexity of the challenge of interpreting and applying Scripture. So we just need to respect those who might disagree with us on these open-hand issues. Closed-hand issues deal with essentials of the faith, right? Things like the authority of Scripture, the Godhead, salvation through Jesus. Scripture is categorically clear on those things. But there are issues that are not emphatically clear and that lend themselves to, I would say, robust discussion and debate, if you're into that kind of thing. Things like what you think about end times. And I've heard, I've got to tell you, in the last two weeks, I've heard all kinds of can I just say it? Crazy stuff about end times, okay? If one other person says the words Gog and Magog to me, (laughs) backing up. Things like spiritual gifts of tongues or the modes of baptism or particulars about the administration of the Lord's Supper or the ministry of women in the church would all be examples of open-hand issues, which reminds me of this quote that is most often attributed to St. Augustine. We said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in everything, love. When it comes to leadership structures in the church, here's something that is closed hand, a closed-hand truth on this topic. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Amen. Not the Pope, not the president of a denomination, not Andy Stanley or Craig Groeschel, not your pastor's not the head deacon. Jesus is the head of the church. And as the head of the church, we believe that Jesus is constantly looking for a few men and women to lead his church on earth and to model the godly attitudes and actions that should be true of all mature 
Christians. But these roles are so important that, that he's selective about who should care for and nurture his people. There are biblical qualifications that are extensive and sometimes specific and essential to the spiritual health of a congregation. And to compromise on those standards is to risk crises of character and morale and unity within the body and ultimately a diminished testimony to the world. So there are at least two types of church leaders that are given special attention in the New Testament. And they are deacons and elders. Surprisingly, not much is said about pastors, so that's nice. Um, in the <laughs> it's true, though. In the New Testament, all churches had multiple elders, but not all churches had deacons. In fact, like we don't have deacons at Faith Community, but we do have people who perform the function of a deacon by the way that they express and act on their gifts in the life of the church. In our church, many of the biblical responsibilities given to deacons are carried out within our small groups and by our care team. The term deacon comes from a Greek word meaning one who serves. The seven uh, men mentioned in Acts 6 function as deacons in the sense that they assisted with the distribution of food to needy widows. So from what we read in Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3 and elsewhere in the New Testament, as local churches were established and grew, the official role of deacon was to assist the elders so that they could give themselves to teaching and prayer. So the other type of leader then is an elder. At Faith Community Fellowship, the elders are a group of men and women who serve to provide advice and oversight and accountability to the pastors. According to the New Testament, in Acts 20, Philippians 1, 1 Timothy 3 and 5, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5, here's what the responsibilities of an elder are. Elders are responsible to, one, lead the church with a servant attitude. Second, to equip the saints by teaching the scriptures. Third, protect the church from false or distorted doctrine. And finally, four, to preserve the unity of the body by shielding the church from the work of divisive individuals. So the way we do this at Faith Community is, first of all, we don't think that every elder needs to be proficient in all those areas of responsibility, okay? When it comes to qualifications, yes, but areas of responsibility, it's more likely that these areas of, of responsibility will be represented within the team of elders that we've chosen as a church. And, and at Faith Community, the pastors are also elders. So while the pastors can focus on the first two responsibilities listed here, right, providing leadership for the overall uh, direction and ministry of the church and the teaching, the primary task of our elders is to preserve the purity of our doctrine and the unity of the body. And in our current model of governance, it's the elders who provide oversight and accountability for the pastors. Now, this is important. The biblical standards for church leadership are personal character qualities. Not college degrees, not seminary degrees, not business administrative skills or personal charisma. Paul said to search deeper, to look for character qualities that reveal a deep-seated faith that reflects integrity and maturity and stability. So the, the standards for elders are, are high because the Scripture says there to be examples to the flock. First Peter says to lead by your good example. Now the qualifications for church leaders are, for the most part, characteristics of a person who is taking his or her faith uh, in Christ seriously. 
like growing in the knowledge of God and maturing in the Christian experience. Personal character and spiritual maturity have to be the key issues when we select leaders. And this, the process um, should follow the example of Scripture. So at Faith Community, the process for recommending and selecting elders is this. First, the current elders identify uh, a need for additional elders. Pray for direction about that. And then make a recommendation to the church. Then the church uh, speaks to that selection uh, of those individuals. And we don't do that in a public meeting format. That's not healthy. That's a process in a lot of churches, and it's really dicey and entertaining, but it's not healthy. But we've chosen to give the church uh, a voice in this process by private communication, either by written letter or by email. And then the elders ordain the uh, the new elders. The most extensive list of qualifications for church leaders, and like a lot of things in the New Testament, you don't find it all in like one passage. So you find it in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. This is probably the most comprehensive uh, list that also overlaps other lists. And we believe these are, these are qualities we should seek out whenever we're looking to fill any leadership role in the church. So the qualifications are a good reputation, self-control, godly values, a spiritually healthy home, a proven mature faith, and a teachable spirit. I want this to be a challenge. This is not just information. This should be a challenge to you. Like, is this true of me? Are these qualities true of me? Let me pivot a little bit and talk about women and leadership in the church. And I know depending on your church background uh, and the level to which you've been involved in leadership in the church, especially in what we used to call evangelical, the evangelical church in America, you might be thinking like, ah, oh, you know, Todd, it's 2022. Is this really an issue we need to be talking about? The answer to that is yes, because typically, this may be news to you, the church, typically, the church doesn't function at the leading edge of cultural evolution, typically. Have you noticed? Which is really too bad because there was a time when the church affected cultural change rather than simply responding to it. But while culture, listen, doesn't define our positions, it does require us to have some new conversations. So first of all, let's talk about, let's talk about the new covenant. The new covenant is the context in which we live. It was inaugura- inaugurated and realized in the person of Jesus. Jesus made peace with us, uh, for us with God through his blood on the cross, reconciled us to the Father, and when Jesus rose from the dead, he made it possible for us to live out this new life, to live in the realities of the new covenant, and he often referred to this kind of living as the kingdom. So here's the thing. The new covenant brought new attitudes and customs concerning the intrinsic value and beneficial involvement of all ethnicities, all socioeconomic levels, and specifically for this discussion, women. So like everything else in the, in the new covenant... This centers around Jesus. In Jesus' day, the prevailing culture, cultural attitudes towards women were appalling. Like, women were considered property. Men and women were not, were not permitted to speak to, with each other in public. And yet, Jesus had women in his traveling group who ministered from town to town. And it's Jesus' treatment and his approval and his recognition of women. Man, it was nothing less than radical. We read it and like, oh yeah, okay. No, we have to understand the context in which he was living. So the night that Jesus treated Mary as a disciple, allowing her to learn at his feet, was a watershed moment for women, and it was a strong message for the soon-to-be church. 
In Ephesians 2, Paul argues that Christ has destroyed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And we're all like, yeah, absolutely. Good thing for us, right? This, this would have been a powerful metaphor for anyone living in Jerusalem since there was a literal wall in the temple that kept Gentiles, us, out of the temple proper. But there was also a physical dividing wall between men and women in the temple. Walls divided the temple between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, where Jewish men and women could both enter, but a Gentile could not. But then the court of the women was as far as a woman could go into the temple. Jewish men could go further. And Jesus destroyed that dividing wall between men and women in his life through his personal contact, and he completed it in death through the blood of the new covenant. And as the church started to grow, women were quickly introduced to leadership roles in a radical departure from the cultural expectations of their day. Like there is credible biblical evidence that women served in a variety of leadership roles. In the New Testament, just in the New Testament, after the birth of the church, women were apostles, they were prophets, deacons, teachers, church planters, and elders. So, so let's talk for a minute about women in leadership in the church in 2022. First of all, Can we just acknowledge that for many of us, our experience in church has been under leadership that is heavily patriarchal, okay? I could take a lot of time to talk about how that came to be, but I'm not really that interested in talking about the past. But the church didn't start out that way, okay? And if we think somehow that women in positions of influence and leadership in the church is is something new, I'm telling you it's actually very, very old. It's the church returning to its roots, All you have to do is read the story of the early days of the church in the New Testament and in historical writings. Like in the birth of the church at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on women and men alike. That had been predicted long before the coming of Jesus. In Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 12 says, The Spirit bestows on all members of this new community without giving anyone preferential treatment based on gender. Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4 says, Every believer is to offer her or his gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ. So, for the church to prevent any believers from exercising their spiritual gifts and calling is to quench the work of the Spirit. And now, I know, I know what you're thinking. I know a few isolated texts appear to restrict the role of women in the church. But the interpretation of those passages has to take into account their, their, broader, their relation to the broader uh, uh, context, right? And the broader teaching of the New Testament. Like, when we study Scripture and we're honestly seeking to understand and rightly apply Scripture, we have to ask a couple questions. We have to ask, what part of the text is cultural expression which changes from culture to culture, and what part of the text is central revelation that never changes? Because here's the thing. Isolated verses lifted from their context do not represent a scriptural consensus. I'll just repeat that. Isolated verses lifted from their context do not represent a scriptural consensus. It's like we lean into things like all things are possible because the Bible says so. And if you lean very heavily into that, you are set up for disappointment because that's taken out of context. It's a dangerous way to interpret and apply scripture. Sometimes you have to go outside the scriptural text and into the historical record in order to get an accurate understanding of the context. In fact, it's when we look at the historical record, especially around the churches in Ephesus and in Corinth, 
where Paul's specific instructions to these specific women in specific churches start, then it starts to make sense. And it becomes consistent with the rest of the, of the New Covenant, the New Testament. And it's interesting to me, let's just get honest, that many churches today who lean into some verses in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul says women should remain silent in the churches, they are not allowed to speak. Like, they take that as a universal prohibition on women occupying leadership or oversight or teaching roles in the church, that somehow these same people, and I can say this because I'm an insider, okay? These same people find a way to completely ignore the overall topic of the chapter, which is actually about worship gatherings and tongues and interpretation and prophesying. So let me just say this. Having spent my whole life in non-charismatic evangelical church circles, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this verse about women used out of context to support a restrictive position. But at the same time, we're just going to ignore the rest of this passage because it's talking about something we don't understand, something we aren't comfortable with, something we'd just rather not go there. Let's be honest. So at Faith Community, we believe that when the Bible is interpreted comprehensively, it teaches a full equality of men and women in status, in giftedness, and an opportunity for ministry. When you're paying attention, when you read the account of the first century church, you discover that women were entrusted with the ministry of teaching in the church. There were female prophets in Acts 2 and Acts 21. There were female teachers in Acts 18 and Titus 2. Female church leaders in Romans 16, Philippians 4, Colossians 4, and even a female apostle by the name of Junia in Romans 16 and Luke 8. There's no text in the Bible that forbids women to be ordained to leadership, to teaching, or to oversight roles in the church because according to the New Testament, all believers, without exception, are ordained by God to do ministry on the basis of their spiritual gifts. Amen. Galatians, there's a little weak. Thank you, Dad. Galatians 3, I don't often call for response. That's okay. But I know you're in agreement. Col- kind of. Colossians, and if you're not, then you're, I appreciate you processing. Galatians 3 says this. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united in Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So not only are distinctions of ethnicity and social status condemned to irrelevance in the body of Christ, but also gender distinction. Because identity with Christ has primary has primacy over all other characterizations like there is neither male nor female it means that the gender difference holds no more significance than racial or class identification in defining the workings of the new community that we know as the church now the christian church in the western world has almost universally placed restrictions on women's role in the church women have traditionally been denied equality with men as a general practice in most societies. We know that to be true. Until like fairly recently, until like our lifetime. So the church in the United States has never had to really face this question as honestly and deeply as it's being compelled to today. Plus we always sit a little bit behind the curve. Now let me ask, just answer a question that you're, you may be asking. So, so if you're sitting there like, so if I disagree with the interpretation of this church's like leadership uh, on this issue, okay? Like, 
then should I leave this church? Like right now? I'm going to say absolutely not. Because listen, there are probably lots of issues where you and I and you and our elders may disagree. Like I think it'd be interesting just to open up the room, get the mic out, the wireless mic, and have a conversation about politics. Let's just talk about politics for a while. Um, let's talk, okay, let's talk, see, see what I'm saying? Let's talk about how our marriages work. Let's talk about how we spend our money. Let's talk about how we're raising our kids, right? There are lots of things we disagree on. This is not an issue to break fellowship over. We are one in Christ. His Spirit unifies us. We share the essentials of the faith, even if we disagree on secondary open-hand issues. Because here's the deal. There are thousands of people around us who need to experience God's grace and be changed by the love of Jesus. So let's agree to just disagree where we need to. But we're going to work together for the sake of the kingdom. So let's talk about why we're talking about this today. First of all, we've added nearly 30 people to our congregation in the last nine months. And I know that a lot of you are coming from other churches, either locally or maybe from another state. And we don't talk about this stuff much. Um, but today we're adding two new elders and we're introducing a no, new role uh, for Pastor Bob. And so we want to be as clear as possible about these thoughts about uh, kind of around our leadership culture. So first of all, let me um, introduce our current elders. And actually, why don't you uh, stand as I say your name so they can kind of, people can kind of see you because they don't wear name badges. So, uh, well, they might wear the paper ones, I don't know. But Craig and Christy Cousins, right over here, stay standing until we get everybody up. Chris and Deb Staples, Chris is in the back of the room. I don't know if Deb's in the room or not. Uh, the, in the Treasure Bay, all right. Um, this is no particular order. Dwayne and Debbie Decker, Tim and Kim Formby, uh, Josh and Megan Young. Did I forget anybody? And Pastor Bob and Barb and Alethea and I serve as elders as well. Some of these elders have been serving in this role for a long time. Some of them all the way to the first year of our church back in 97, 98. So I want to acknowledge your significant contribution to the leadership of our church. Um, every one of you. So You can be seated. Every one of them in their own way has embodied the role of elder in our church. They've challenged our thinking. They've served selflessly. They've championed the mission and the values of this church and the church. And today, we just want you to know we hold you in high regard. Amen. Now, we're going to introduce our, new, our newest elders. So a few weeks ago, we announced that we'd invited Kevin and Kelly Braley to join our leadership team and to serve as elders at Faith Community. We believe that both of them meet the biblical qualifications as an elder and, and just that they'd be a, this is the right time and they'd be a good fit as, for, for our team of elders. So here's how this works. Like uh, Several months ago, we had this conversation amongst the elders. We identified a need for additional leadership. We consulted with the current elders. We asked both Kevin and Kelly to serve our church as elders. We've had some pretty extensive uh, conversations about that, and we've introduced them to the church as such a few weeks ago. Now the church has had that opportunity these last few weeks to ask questions about our selection, and now we are ready to publicly recognize them as elders. We call this ordination. Let me just speak about this idea of public ordination. The practice of ordaining people to hold positions of authority or leadership in churches is really um, an ecclesiastical uh, trend, uh, tradition, not necessarily a biblical prescription, okay? Like, for instance, like Paul and Barnabas, they were already, already among the recognized prophets and apostles and teachers of the church in Antioch when they received the laying on of hands, not to make them prophets or teachers or apostles, but to commission them and to recognize them as such. So here's the big point I want you to understand. Like ordination, whether 
to a pastoral role or an elder's role doesn't make anyone somehow more qualified or more responsible to carry out the mission of the gospel. According to the New Testament, all believers without exception are already ordained by God to do ministry on the basis of your spiritual gifts. But public ordination is simply a recognition of one's calling, giftedness, responsibility, listen, to the local church. This isn't about hierarchy. There aren't tiers of spirituality here. This isn't about some lofty goal that you could hope to attain someday. And at the same time, it isn't something that's beyond your reach if you're called to the ministry of eldership. So let me just challenge you with this. Given what we've said so far, would you qualify for a position of leadership in the church? And ask like yourself, like be honest, why or why not? So like if the answer is yes, like are you then willing to follow Christ and show others the way? And if not, what needs to change? Like what's preventing you from making those changes? Like maybe, maybe you've been a believer for a long time, but you know you wouldn't qualify for leadership because of some ongoing sin patterns in your life or because you've just simply failed to mature as a believer. Remember, God wants us to live a godly life even if you're not a leader. So let's just, let's just commit to choose right now to follow Jesus and be someone worth following. So in a minute, we're going to invite Kevin and Kelly to join us here at the front, and the elders are going to join us as well. But this, this practice that we know as ordination has its roots in the Old Testament, beginning with the consecration of Aaron and his sons uh, as priests back in Leviticus. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, when Jesus appointed the first 12 and later the 70 disciples to carry out the ministry, there was no formal celebration like that in the Old Testament. But uh, despite Jesus' lack of uh, formality in that process, when he returned to the Father, right, the leaders in the church decided that they needed helpers in the ministry. And so they returned to what was familiar to them, a more formal Old Testament style of laying on hands. And simply because the early church practiced this kind of public ordination, it isn't necessary, but we have it as an example, and we've chosen to practice that as well. So here's why we do it, a few reasons. We do a public ordination, number one, because it's for the elders themselves, Like, it's a holy moment when one recognizes that they've been entrusted with the care of the mission of the church. It's a benchmark moment to be publicly affirmed in the presence of your church family and before God. Secondly, it's significant for the life of the congregation. Like, these are teachable moments in the life of the church where we can be taught and be reminded that there are examples of servanthood and leadership right here in our church family. And hopefully this serves as a motivation to you to continue to grow as godly role models and to challenge you to press in on your own growth. And then finally, it's a, it's a tradition with meaning. And we've never been very traditional. We've killed our share of sacred cows, but we have held on to traditions that have meaning. And the ordination of pastors and elders is one of them. So while it's not biblically mandated, it's an example from Scripture and a tradition that we're going to continue as long as we can effectively attach significant meaning. So with that, I'm going to ask all of the elders, including Kevin Kelly, to join us at the front. This is just so the, so the church can know the inner motives of your heart. Just answer these. Do you affirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes. Do you sincerely agree with Faith Community's doctrinal statement? Yes. Will you endeavor to leave with a, with a spirit of humility and servanthood? One more. Will you commit to preserving the doctrinal integrity of our church's teaching and the unity of the body? Yes. So as a church, we recognize and affirm your calling and your fitness for leadership in this church. Having heard your responses to these questions, 
we officially ordain you as elders of Faith Community Fellowship. We're going to lay on hands, and Josh is going to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. And if, if you'd like to join us just by extending your hand in this direction as a prayer of blessing uh, for Kevin and Kelly and our leaders here, uh, join us. Lord, we come before you this morning. We, first of all, thank you for this opportunity to be here, a body of believers that can encourage and help each other and pray for each other. And we, we take our responsibilities as believers seriously. And in this church, our leadership team takes this, those responsibilities of, of leading this church seriously. And we are excited to bring Kevin and Kelly this morning um, to bring them into that leadership position. We know um, the, the hearts that they have, the willingness to serve, because this is a servant leadership position. This is to serve the local church. And we just thank you for them and their willingness to do this, their faith, um, just the, the uh, reputation that they have in this church of being there for other people to help and give you the shirts off their backs if they could. And we just thank you for that. We pray that as we move forward with them in this leadership role, we just pray for them. You would strengthen them. You would help them to um, just be that example, that shining light to those around you. We just thank you once again for this opportunity and for Kevin and Kelly. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. He's going to, I told him to take his time because we never get good, it's hard to take pictures in this space, especially this group of people. No, no doubt. <laughs> Bob loves pictures. All right. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> For some time now, um, Dad and I have been talking about his role in the church. And I thought a little history here might help. I graduated from uh, kindergarten. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> this is some sweet pictures. I graduated uh, from seminary in the spring of 1989. And a few weeks later, I was interviewing for a pastorate in New Brunswick. Same Sunday that Dad was interviewing in Ellsworth, Maine. I didn't take that position in Canada, mostly because it wasn't offered to me. And uh, Dad... <laughs> Dad did accept the call to become the pastor of what was then Ellsworth Baptist Temple. We arrived in Ellsworth in August that year, and later that year I joined the staff, um, and they made up a position for me and eventually became the youth pastor. Dad and I served together there for seven and a half years. In the spring of 1997, we launched Faith Community Fellowship, and we did that as co-pastors. And for the first five years, we made every decision together. Uh, we figured out how to make that work. We had a, that kind of relationship that, we could, that, that worked for us. Um, and, and it worked, maybe, maybe it worked because we didn't have a central office, because we weren't in each other's spaces. We had offices at home. We figured out ways to communicate. We were also both working outside the church as well. And the first time that our roles kind of uh, changed was in the fall of 2002, when Dad, the guy who finds a way to get in the back row of every picture, uh, got himself elected to the state house without ever showing his face, I guess. I don't know, but uh, it's not true. But anyway, uh, yeah, so in the fall of 2002, he was elected to the State House for the first time, and he went on to serve three terms in the legislature. 
during those years, he and mom essentially lived in Augusta in a motel room they referred to as their southern home. For, but he was basically gone for half the year for six years between Sundays, okay? He never missed a Sunday because of that, never missed a teaching assignment or leading a small group, but he was uh, putting on a few miles, let's just say that. But because of that, it required a shift in the way that we shared leadership responsibilities. And uh, so then, just as dad is winning re-election the first time, the church bought this building. It didn't look like this when we bought it. It was built as a roller skating rink in the late 70s, over 40 years ago. It had been an electrical supply warehouse for several years, and for about two years before we bought it, it sat abandoned. Let's just say it needed a lot of work. So we spent the next six months renovating this building with all volunteer labor, labor and no budget. And again, the result was another shift in the balance of our leadership responsibilities. So like then, like for the last few years, um, we've been talking about what dad would like his role to look like at this stage in his life when a lot of his peers are retiring from ministry. So again, we, we began to shift the balance of our teaching responsibilities. I don't know if you've picked up on that, but I picked up a few more Sunday teaching slots than I had been accustomed to. And so for the last few months, though, we've been circling around this idea for a title change, one that would actually reflect a role change that has already happened. Okay, so he and I talked about this quite a bit. Uh, we've talked as couples, uh, we've talked as el- with the elders, and so today we're, we're just going to make this official. So let's just make this clear. Pastor Bob is not retiring from pastoral ministry, okay? Pastor Bob will pastor people, provide pastoral ministry to people as long as he's drawing breath. I know that about him. We are, however, allowing him, providing him an avenue to quote-unquote retire from some of, no, it's retiring from some of the responsibilities of the senior pastorate. In other words, he will undoubtedly continue to shepherd people without the responsibilities of shepherding the church as an organization. Does that make sense? So in this transition, we're shifting his title from co-pastor to pastor emeritus. And the term pastor emeritus is used by denominations. I don't know if you've ever been in a church that had a pastor emeritus. Have you ever heard that title? Um, It's used by churches and uh, denominations to honor a person whose long-term ministry in that church has been one of exceptional service. Various churches and denominations have different definitions and different roles for pastor emeritus. So we're borrowing from that and we've established our own definition for this role. Emeritus is an anglicized Latin word, which I'm sure dad knows from his many years of, of studying Latin involuntarily. Uh, Anyway, that's another story that has nothing to do with this, but um, it refers to one who has earned his discharge by faithful service. You may have heard it used of retired professors, or maybe you've been in churches with a pastor emeritus. I know dad was. Uh, In our, like I remember that as a child, his home church having a pastor emeritus. In our context, I believe the title should be seen as an expression of 1 Timothy 5, where Paul says the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So here's something we know is true. When a long-term pastor, especially a founding pastor, right, remains in a congregation after stepping away from senior leadership responsibilities, there is potential for confusion, right? So we decided to put our expectations in the form of a covenant. This covenant is between Pastor Bob, our new pastor emeritus, and the elders. It's not a job description, but a relational roadmap with a view to guiding our mutual expectations and commitments. Because alongside this declaration of honor, 
the title Pastor Emeritus also signifies limitation. Like Pastor Emeritus has no responsibilities for the overall leadership of the church, including the grander vision and the day-to-day operation. Here's the thing, though. While Pastor Emeritus is relieved of those duties, his years of experience and his heart for this church implore us to welcome his counsel. Right? I'm going to ask Pastor Bob and Craig to come to the stage. Um, And uh, let me just, yeah, while you're coming, let me just kind of highlight what we've agreed to in this covenant. If, I'm going to make this available to you in an email this week, and I'll have a hard copies available if you don't see your emails, just so you can see the whole covenant. But I just want to, I want to highlight a couple of things that we agreed to, okay? First of all, we agreed that the familiar and affectionate title, Pastor Bob, shall no longer be spoken... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> By, <laughs> don't let me hear you. <laughs> that, that title is warranted, all right? He is Pastor Bob. And uh, so it doesn't signify a senior pastoral role or responsibility uh, to the organization, but acknowledges his role as pastor to people, okay? So yes, you can still call him Pastor Bob. We agree that Pastor Emeritus is not obligated to participate in the day-to-day operation of the church, like decision-making and attending meetings and those kinds of things. And Pastor Emeritus does not exercise an official pastoral role at Faith Community, But as with any elder, where he's going to continue to serve, he may offer advice, provides oversight, and is going to be sought out for input. So we agree that he won't be expected to attend church strategy, vision meetings, those types of things. And we agree that Pastor Emeritus' participation in ministerial duties is important for the church to hear. His participation in ministerial duties, things like weddings, funerals, counseling, ordinances, pastoral care, should not be presumed. Okay? I'm sure he might be open to those things. When the time is right, the situation is right, but don't presume that. And then we agree that Pastor Emeritus will be given opportunity to teach regularly on Sundays, a couple times a year, as, no, uh, as, agreed, as agreed upon and determined by the pastors, the elders, and Pastor Emeritus. We don't want to land in a place that uh, is the right combination for everybody. And then we agree that we are going to revisit this on a regular basis, we're saying yearly, with a view of its ultimate intent of edifying the church and glorifying God through a humble, mutually uplifting relationship. Then I have some. Craig wants to read something. I'm going to go off script a little oh, bit. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Bob and Barb, when Christy and I, when you first came into our lives, we were wet behind the ears, bottle feeding, diaper changed Christians. And through our lives, you've been a rock, a mentor, and Barb also. Uh, through the hard times, you've been there for us, prayed with us, and just comforted us and gui- guided us through those things. Through the good times, you celebrated with us, and we appreciate you greatly for those things. And with that said, recognizing your continual pastoral leadership, beginning in 1974, And of this congregation, since its inception in 1997, we bestow upon you the honor of being known to us and to others as Pastor Emeritus of Faith Community Fellowship. Your experience, wisdom, and above all love for this church will ensure that we continue to seek your guidance in the years to come. We hold you in high regard.
I just want to know if this is going to count as uh, one of the two for the year. <laughs> I got thinking of speaking twice in the year. Man, those are going to be long sermons. <laughs> I will say this, very, very few churches in this age ever talk about or design a succession plan of any kind. And even fewer still ever execute such a plan for the future of their church. And I'm so happy to stand here today to report to you that Faith Community Fellowship, as Pastor Todd said, has not only been working on a succession plan, but also we've, been, we've taken first steps, as you can see, uh, in the implementation of that plan. And so I wanted to share with you from Old Testament scripture, as strange as it might seem. In chapter 14 of Numbers, we see Moses, who's the undisputed uh, leader of the Israelites. He's getting to the border of Canaan. And that's as far as he would go. But remember this. He had helped the Israelites get out of Egypt. And he had led them through the wilderness for 40 years. After Moses and his God-ordained leadership of such a huge congregation, I mean, how could the people move on to a safe and a satisfying future? And would they even have a future? Well, we can find some real good guiding principles. They're key to consider when looking at this whole subject of leadership succession and growth. And I've seen some leadership succession in some churches that just was not planned and it just didn't work out and it didn't last and it just turned everything into, a, into a chaos and turmoil. So let's look at these key guiding principles just, just for a moment. This whole subject of leadership succession and growth and if we do that, I'm going to ask if you're making a note to go on to Numbers chapter 27. And in Numbers 27, verse 16 to be exact, it instructs this thusly, and I quote, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community. And some of your translations that won't be the word community, it'll be the word congregation. So as God's work at faith community continues, and it will, we must remember that he has called his servants, and he's the one who prepares the individuals who will lead this spiritual family going forward. That gives me great peace of mind, and that gives me a great sense of excitement thinking of what kind of future faith community will have. The second thing I'd have you notice in um, Numbers 27 is in verse 17. Moses continues his plea or his request to God. And he says, we need someone who will go out and come in before the people, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Now a note to all who will hear, who, who will hear me this morning. If you're a future pastor perhaps, or an elder, or leader of, of any stripe, what truly makes an effective spiritual leader is not charisma, it's not genius, it isn't even giftedness. God is looking for people who have a shepherd's heart, individuals who genuinely love people. 
and uh, those who live to serve others and to understand their needs and to do what you can to meet those needs and humbly lead those people where God wants them to go. So often we're tempted to want to lead people where we want them to go, but you know, the whole idea of servanthood is to lead people in a humble way into that place where God wants them to be for their lives. Third thing I want to leave with you, if you took Numbers 27 and went down from verses 18 through 20, God now replies to Moses in his plea, and his request. He says to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun. An interesting characteristic here of Joshua. Take Joshua, the son of Nun. Here's what he says to Moses. A man in whom is the spirit of leadership. And lay your hand upon him. And by the way, the laying on of hands, here's what it meant. It means to put some of your honor upon him. And give him some of your authority so this whole Israelite community or congregation will be obedient to him and to his leadership. What phenomenal words for leaders to hear. In other words, God is saying, Moses, I've picked Joshua. Now you pick him and support this man. A word to any leader in the fellowship who may be listening. And it doesn't matter to me what you lead or what area you're leading in or might lead in the years ahead. If you live long enough to be able to pass along a ministry to another, do so. Do so. And then get out of the way. And to you who maybe have not developed a spirit of leadership as yet, don't let some sense of, or a feeling of fear or inadequacy stop you from moving forward in a life of service to God. I want to leave this reminder to one and all. We should not be nearly as impressed with the servant of God as we should be with the God of the servant. My prayer is may God continue to bless and strengthen and grow us here at Faith Community as we move forward together in his great service. Thank you.